Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. I am Tonika Lewis-Johnson, and I am here with the acclaimed author and expert on uh, segregation in our country, Mr. Richard Rothstein. And uh, we have become fast friends during the pandemic. And today I am going to be speaking with him specifically about land sale contracts. Um, I am going to be starting my own project, kind of expanding the work of so many others. Um, revealing the history of land sale contracts specific to the greater Inglewood community. And today I'm going to get Mr. Rothstein's thoughts on just that period of plunder, not only in Chicago, but in our country. And um, what are your thoughts on how that specific discriminatory use of land sale contracts um, impacted not only Black would-be homeowners, but predominantly Black neighborhoods in cities like Chicago? Well, as you know, land sale contracts became necessary uh, because African-Americans in neighborhoods like Englewood, like Lawndale, couldn't get conventional mortgages for homes that they wanted to purchase. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration frowned on banks making mortgages to African-Americans. Banks themselves discriminated and wouldn't issue mortgages uh, to African-Americans. So if somebody wanted to buy a home in a place like Englewood, they could only do it on what we call land contracts, which is really just an installment plan. Uh, people uh, rent a home, in effect, uh, if they continue renting it until the long-term end of its installment period, then they can own it. But if they miss a payment, uh, the uh, contract can be canceled. The property reverts to the speculator or bank that financed uh, the land sale contract. And in the meantime, the families who thought they were owning it, but were really just making installment payments, gain no equity, so they walk away with nothing. What this did was it perpetuated an enormous wealth gap between African-Americans and whites, because when whites bought homes, every monthly payment they made had a portion of uh, down payment on principal, as well as uh, uh, payment on interest. And so they accumulated month by month equity in the home, if they lost the home, they sold it, uh, they kept the equity that they had gained to that point. African-Americans uh, who were purchasing homes that they thought, but in fact, 
uh, making installment payments toward the purchase of a home gain no equity in this process. The result of this, written large across the nation, is this contributes to an enormous wealth gap between black and white families in this country. African-American families have incomes that are about 60% on average of white family incomes, but African-American wealth is about 5% of white wealth because of the inability of African-Americans in the 1950s and 60s particularly to accumulate equity in the homes that they thought they were purchasing, but in fact, were only uh, making installment payments towards the purchase of, they gain no wealth from that process. That enormous disparity there for, between the 60% income ratio and African-American household wealth, which is only about 5% of white wealth, is almost entirely attributable to this difference in how uh, African-Americans had to uh, purchase homes as opposed to whites. This is all a federally constructed program. Uh, it was unconstitutional to deny uh, African-Americans the same kinds of mortgages that whites were able to obtain for their homes and accumulate equity as a result. It requires a remedy. I hope that uh, as this project proceeds and we call attention to this uh, outrageous unconstitutional behavior, we'll begin to look not just at educating ourselves about the past, but in using that information uh, for supporting action to make remedial, to force remedial activity in the present. And when you talk about remedial activity in the present, um, you know, I want you to, you know, explain what that could look like, but in explaining what that could look like, you know, help people understand how this specific period and discriminatory use of land contracts, not only did it help perpetuate the wealth gap, but it also impacted neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that these homes were in. And, and I know my project seeks to help people make that connection because sometimes when you hear about the term, oh, wealth gap, you, you don't know where to apply it to in your everyday life. And so could you walk people through how this specific um, discriminatory housing practice, not only did it create the wealth gap, but how it impacted the neighborhoods that these homes and these families lived in? Well, I think it's clear families have less wealth. Their neighborhood has fewer amenities. They're less able to invest in their homes. They're less able to maintain stable employment. You know, if a, um, a family has wealth and they suffer temporary unemployment, they can cover that period and still bounce back when their job reappears. If a family has wealth and they have a medical emergency, they can uh, still uh, uh, survive that medical emergency and return to normal activity once they've uh, paid for it, uh, taken care of the expenses. If a family has wealth, they can support their retirements when they're old age. Their children then don't have to support them. And their children then have more money to invest in their own community and their own homes. Uh, if a family has wealth, 
they can uh, send their children to college, to expensive colleges. And that in turn enables them as adults to enter higher earning professions and it increases their income indirectly as well. So this is all wrapped up together in interacting, interrelating uh, life crises and life opportunities. Wealth underlies so much of the security that people have in this country and the denial of wealth is a result of the denial of uh, African-Americans to have conventional mortgages that were amortized where they could gain equity as time goes on, is a contributor to the inequality on so many different levels uh, throughout the black and white communities. And also it speaks to, um, you know, present day statistics, uh, Greater Inglewood, for example, has a home ownership rate of 25 to 28%. Um, and, you know, some people don't understand how the percentage, the home ownership rate of a community impacts amenities, the schools that are around it. So can you explain to people that connection and how, um, you know, not only the wealth gap, but the fact that these would-be homeowners were not homeowners. So therefore, the home ownership rate was not really necessarily true. So could you help the people understand how the home ownership rate and how owning a home does contribute to um, the flourishing of a neighborhood? Uh, because amenities, some people don't understand, well, regardless if people owned a home or not, why didn't their communities have certain amenities? Well, homeowners um, typically uh, ha are more invested in their community. They consider themselves long-term residents of that place. They consider it their home. And so home ownership leads to greater stability in the community as a whole. Homeowners take more interest in their local schools than renters do. Renters don't necessarily think they're gonna be in that school district for very long. Um, homeowners know that they're going to be there for much longer. Homeowners are more interested in the um, overall amenities of the neighborhood um, in making sure that it's safe. They have more political influence because they feel that they have long-term stakes in that community. So home ownership has a number of benefits in terms of uh, the health of a community that goes beyond simply accumulating wealth. And when I referred uh, before about to remedies, we can identify the banks that financed these contract sales in the 1950s and 60s. We can identify the realtors who identified these contract sales in the 1950s and 60s. And those realtors sometimes are affiliated with agencies that still exist today. In some cases, um, those realtors have um, uh, successors who can be identified today. They were licensed and members of their state real estate boards. They have a responsibility and, and the local real estate associations, they have a responsibility for this uh, behavior as well. So a local civil rights group could conduct a campaign to get these banks, to get the realtors or their descendants to contribute to a fund that's going to increase the home ownership rate 
of families, not only in Englewood, but of Englewood residents who choose to buy homes elsewhere. Uh, the white home ownership rate in this country is about 70 some odd percent. The black home ownership rate in this country is about 42% or so. If in Englewood it's 28%, that's the, the difference between that 28% and something above the 40 some odd percent of black home ownership nationwide is attributable to this uh, contract sale system that duped people into thinking they were buying homes when in fact they were only making installment payments towards uh, the purchase of the home that gained them no equity. And so if you could also just share with me your thoughts on why this has not, <laughs> why this has not been um, addressed. Like, is it literally just outright racism or are there actual, um, you know, kind of institutional barriers that prevent this from being remedied outside of a civil rights group? Like how come it isn't viewed as a benefit to the country for there to be more homeowners? So to just figure out a way to increase home ownership in general is do you feel as though um, it's it's clear as to why this has not been addressed on a larger scale just for our country to have increased home ownership in general or in your view it is just simply racism why it hasn't well, reform never happens by itself. The only way reform happens of any kind in this society is with an organized group of reformers uh, who take action, develop political support, mobilize uh, community support to make those reforms take place. Uh, that's true in, in this area as in every area. In this area, we call reform groups civil rights groups. And in order to remedy the contract sales system, a civil rights group needs to conduct a campaign directed at the banks that created this um, inequality. And uh, the banks may very well recognize the inequality, but they're not going to take steps on their own to redress it, it's going to require a civil rights movement like we had in Chicago in the past, but um, that's now no longer active, that's going to mount a campaign against the banks, the realtors, the speculators, and their descendants, their inheritors, uh, to take steps to remedy the uh, policies that were followed to deny African-Americans true home ownership. And so, you know, you and I have been talking um, a lot about, you know, just our work being in conversation with each other, um, especially as I embark on um, doing the continued research, engagement, and implementation of uh, my new project. 
uh, that will identify a collection of these homes that were sold on land sale contracts that still exist in Greater Inglewood. I'll be creating landmarkers for those homes and doing um, in memorial engagements around it. Hopefully having one of those homes end up being um, uh, kind of like a monument to this, to this period um, and hopefully an educational space. Uh, why do you think that this kind of project is important and how do you feel it can be used uh, to, to, to further this cause? Well, educating people about this history is an essential first step to correcting it. People don't understand this history. People have forgotten it. They don't know what happened. The project you're describing will be a phenomenal contribution to the education of people, not only in Englewood, but throughout the whole Chicago area about how Chicago came to be so unequal. But education itself is not enough. Once you've educated people, and that's your role in this project, there needs to be an activist group that uses that education, a civil rights group that uses that, ex that education uh, to build remedial action on top of. As I said, the, it's not going to happen by itself. Reform never happens just because people are educated. Reform only happens because there's a mobilized force of uh, people who um, are willing to take direct action, willing to organize, to create a movement that is going to make it impossible to ignore the inequality that this um, contract sale system created. And can you speak to um, how this organization, this civil rights movement, um, who it should include, how it should look? Um, because obviously we all <laughs> have been working towards not only improving our country, uh, but the hyperlocal places where we are, and yet this kind of reform hasn't happened. The kind of legislation to make you know equity across all sectors has not happened. What what do you think is needed um, differently than what we've seen before in regards to organizing in regards to a civil rights movement? Well. A civil rights movement in Chicago in particular, uh, but true everywhere, must be biracial and multi-ethnic. African-Americans in Englewood do not have sufficient power to fix this on their own. African-Americans have to lead the effort to fix it. Other people can't tell African-Americans what they should do about their community. African-Americans have to be in leadership but they need substantial white support as well. The, I mentioned before the banks in particular that uh, financed this uh, exploitative contract sale system. While the banks were doing that, they were also financing mortgages for neighborhoods in the, in the white suburbs that excluded African-Americans. The same banks were doing both. On the one hand, they were financing speculators to um, create installment plan purchases of homes in Englewood and Lawndale, and at the same time financing developers 
to build all white suburbs from which African-Americans were excluded in the suburbs. A civil rights group in Chicago, if it ever got formed, would have to address both of these. And fortunately, it's easy to bo address both of them together because it's the same banks that were doing it. So it needs to be a biracial, multi-ethnic group, it needs to mobilize support in both white and black communities, and it needs to focus on the institutions that contributed to creating this inequality and expecting them to step up to be part of the solution. It's an amazing um, exhibition right now on, on housing, specifically focusing on the time period that um, Dr. Martin Luther King was in Chicago. It's at the Elmhurst Museum of Art. Um, and the exhibition is speaking from the perspective of the creation of Elmhurst. Um, their, their role in, <laughs> in the residents, uh, the resident group's role in um, perpetuating this segregation. And the exhibition, you know, just puts it out there. They have ephemera from that period that shows very <laughs> racist communication of residents, of giving them instructions on, you know, um, how to interact with Black neighbors, or it, it, it's very interesting. So, um, you know, just even thinking of that flip side of it, how, how would you suggest um, people who are, who live in these suburbs, how how would you suggest them learning the suburbs role in just the segregation that exists in metropolitan areas or what would be some ways in which those residents could engage into redressing this, this horrible insidious well, there are civil rights groups forming in the suburbs that are mostly white, um, that are aware of the, this uh, outrageous history, that want to organize to uh, take steps to uh, redress it. Um, those groups that are mostly white in these suburbs that are concerned with racial justice that have un understood this history and want to um, reform need to make alliances and uh, with groups in Englewood that have common concerns so that you can create the kind of biracial movement that's necessary to uh, gain enough power to affect reform. They exist. And uh, I'm not going to name uh, people here, but uh, I know many people in the suburbs of Chicago who are um, interested in being part of a civil rights movement. They're looking for leadership and maybe you can provide it for them. Definitely in the spirit of folded map, that does need to happen though, um, because, because of segregation, uh, you know, we, we are not only just geographically um, segregated, but in order for us to have the space to come together, um, you know, the connection is, is necessary. And so hopefully, my project can um, serve as a tool to invite those who have that shared interest to, to come together and, and meet 
to to discuss these issues. So that is one of my goals of the project, um, not only to educate, but serve as an invitation for those who um, uh, value redressing this issue and, and so that they can meet. And I think that's one of the just basic challenges, uh, just the, the connection of individuals and, and how they're going to learn to communicate with each other, even though they have these shared values around this issue, but just the space in which to actually meet each other. Um, there is a gap and um, hopefully, hopefully my project will, will, will create an actual physical space where they can meet and, and have these discussions. So, in addition to this specific period, um, is there anything else that you feel, particularly um, my audience, because I will be sharing this not only on social media, but it will be included in the project, but for people who don't necessarily understand all of the ins and outs of, of this historic issue, um, just in general, is there anything that you would like to, to say to them, to, to learn more, or to just um, understand the serious impact of these historic discriminatory practices today? Is there anything you'd like to say in closing to them, or any um, little advice or suggestions on what they should, can do? Because a lot of people um, see these conversations and, and are motivated to do something. So what is something an individual who's hearing this, watching it could, could do? Well, beside, beside, you know, read your book. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be a bad idea. But, yeah, they definitely need to do um, that. But, um, a civil rights group, that gets organized in Chicago to address these issues, and I hope one will, we'll have to start small. It won't be able to start out with a lot of political power to get redress for uh, the housing inequality that was created. But one step that can be taken immediately is um, ensuring that the history that we've been describing is taught accurately in their schools. because. If the next generation doesn't learn this history any better than we have, they're going to be in as poor a position to remedy it as we've been. So this is something that anybody can do without a big, powerful citywide movement. They can look at how uh, the history of segregation is being taught, how their children are being educated. And this is true in both black and white neighborhoods and ensure that it's being taught accurately. Because oftentimes, um, you know, I find, especially with the engagement that I've done around Folded Map, um, is that people feel beyond legislation that this issue is so huge that they don't know how they could disrupt it just in their everyday life. And they feel like, oh, if I'm not an activist or, you know, I, I can't contribute to a solution, um, which is why. I created, you know, the folded map action kit. You can't see it, but um, for it to serve as a as another way to help people learn in real time about disparity and what it looks like, and and to hopefully allow that to for them to think about 
how it became that way and for them to understand it is a difference. It's not just a difference in um, uh, the home ownership rates, but it's a difference between the maintenance of the businesses that are there, the services, the products that are even there. Um, so I just really wanted to be able to kind of break it down for people to know the personal, the personal work that they can do just in their everyday lives that ultimately contribute to the larger goal. Um, and so it, it makes me feel good to hear you suggest something as simple as ensuring that this is taught properly in, in schools. I'm taking action to do that um, because people just feel like they're not empowered to make a change because it's it feels like such a huge historic mammoth of an issue that they can't do anything every day. And so I know I spend a lot of my time um, helping people understand to not minimize the importance of connecting to people who are different than you, who have different lived experience, who are from a different neighborhood, um, visiting those neighborhoods um, to, to learn more. So could you speak to the, the power of connectivity? Um, you've definitely used, given the example of having a multi-racial civil rights group, how that is essential. Um, but just in general, in your everyday life, um, how and why it's important to, to make connections with people beyond your immediate social circle um, that could further this work? Well, I think you've done that better than anybody else with your folded back project. You've shown how easy it is, if only you put your mind to it, to establish cross-racial relationships. The problem we face in this country in developing a civil rights movement is that so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other that they have no opportunity to interact. They don't know each other. And it takes some intentionality to do that. Uh, this can be done by uh, connecting uh, churches uh, that have, um, churches, as you know, are, are quite segregated, but white and black churches can establish relationships that enable their uh, congregants to um, get to know each other. Uh, I think uh, I, one of your uh, folded map participants said that um, he was surprised how easy it was to um, get to know and to befriend people from the other side of the city where he had never been before. It's amazing to me in Chicago, there are so many whites on the north side who have never been to the south side. And so many blacks on the south side have never been to the north side. It doesn't take much to overcome that if you put your mind to it. And um, that has to be the first step in creating the base of a, a biracial and multi-ethnic movement. Well, thank you so much okay. for this time and this conversation. Of course, we will uh, have more, but I really appreciate you um, sharing your thoughts. And um, this is not a real TV show, so I don't need to have a real ending. So I'm going to just yes. shut up. <laughs> okay. All right. just, and there we go. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, why don't you turn off the recording and we can talk about something okay, else? Cool. Okay.